We've seen unprecedented rent increases in the past year in all markets all over the country. It's really a national issue. And it's a local issue as well that affects different communities and different people in different ways. You can certainly see all of those impacts in the numbers, but numbers really don't tell the whole story. So today, let's look beyond the numbers and beyond the national issues. We'll focus on the affordability crisis, what it means and what work is underway in the hunting park section of North Philadelphia. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. Today on the show, we have a fantastic guest from an organization that has done and continues to do a tremendous amount of work in Hunting Park and beyond. We're very fortunate to be joined by the Reverend Luis Cortez, the founder, president, and CEO of Esperanza. Reverend Cortez founded Esperanza in 1986 with support from the Hispanic clergy of Philadelphia. Esperanza began as a local initiative with programs targeted to address the unmet needs of Philadelphia's Latino community. And it's grown from a small one-person operation to more than 500 employees with a wide variety of programs and impacts. Reverend Cortez is now sought by national and international leaders on issues of economic and workforce development, housing, immigration, and education. Uh, So really grateful to have him on the podcast today. We're also joined by Peter Knight, Principal of Policy Kinetics. Peter is an advisor and consultant to Esperanza now, but throughout his career, he's worked on policy matters in the fields of banking, capital markets, mortgage finance, housing finance, economic development, and uh, government-sponsored enterprises. So Peter and uh, Luis, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us on. Really, there's there's just so much to talk about today, but you know, I gave a little bit of it in, in the uh, intro, but let's start with some background on Esperanza, you know, how you started and the work that you do. Well, Esperanza started in uh, 1986 uh, as I was the founder, and it started as a clergy response to housing crisis in Philadelphia. Um, and today, over, over those decades, um, um, we've grown in, in a myriad of ways. We do charter schools, K-12 education. We do housing counseling. We're a HUD national intermediary. We're in nine states throughout the United States doing housing counseling. We do housing development in Philadelphia using all the traditional methods, private equity, uh, private funding, uh, low-income housing tax credits. We've used home funds. And back in the day, as they say, when the city would uh, allow CDBG funding, community development block grant funding, we used that as well, as well as some new market tax credit money. So we do housing development. We're working with over 200 small businesses in our community commercial corridors. We do some environmental work and some health disparities work. So we respond to the needs of the local community and the issues that are in front of us today. uh, The biggest uh, crisis is the housing crisis as it uh, continues to uh, grow instead of us being able to uh, tame it down. That is, uh, so, so certainly um, we, we really want to hear about um, your views on the housing crisis and what you're seeing in that today. It is remarkable the, the kind of the range of, of activities that you've gotten involved in. And uh, I'm curious about, uh, you know, uh, w- what drives what you're working on at any given point in time. And maybe uh, you can speak to um, some of your history uh, in addition to building up to the, the, the affordability today. 
Sure. The, uh, the driver for us is community, the community need. And because we were founded by clergy, we have ears close to the ground who will tell us, um, who share with, with our board. Uh, these are specific things that we're seeing growing in our community. We have over uh, 500 employees and they all have input in different ways. And we serve over 25,000 families in uh, North Philadelphia annually. So a lot of, if you're just listening, you're going to hear. And folks don't have a problem letting us know what they would like for us to address. Early on, we started with mortgage and housing counseling. And uh, strangely enough, it's still a major piece for us. Uh, Our community gets pushed in certain ways uh, economically, right? Uh, Similar to other Hispanic communities in our country. Uh, So we respond to things that are happening in in our community. The housing crisis uh, is acerbated by issues of gentrification, um, the lack of affordable housing, the the raising of interest rates. There's a list of things. But if, if we wanted to look at the gentrification issue first, or I'd like to mention it first, One of the things I'd love to mention is, or or I need people to realize, uh, Chicago, the city of Chicago had three Hispanic communities. They have uh, grown. They are smaller today than they used to be, though there are more Hispanic people in uh, the the state of Illinois. I was born and raised in New York City in what is today called Spanish Harlem uh, um, or Upper Yorkville now. And... um, the Hispanic community of Philadelphia, has, of New York City, Manhattan, has pretty much been eradicated. Uh, most of it is in the upper Bronx, Yonkers, or over on the Jersey side. Same thing happens in Boston. Uh, Adams Morgan in Washington, D.C. was a Hispanic community. Uh, most of the people who, lived in, uh, who used to live in that area, um, who were from the lower economic or the middle economic strata, have had to move to um, um, Virginia. Uh, Most of them have moved into um, Prince County in Virginia. And then here in Philadelphia, we're seeing the same dynamic. Uh, We're a row home community. And it's the issue of gentrification, a lot of people don't understand. So for many people, they say, well, some people are making, we're helping families grow economically uh, because when we buy the home, well, in Hunting Park, 60% of the homes are rented. So 60% of the sales are, not, uh, are, in fact, not going to the family who lived there. That family now has to leave and find affordable housing elsewhere. And one of the big impacts of gentrification is the loss of economic opportunity. I mean, many people don't understand that. But mo- we have 200 small businesses that create jobs in this neighborhood. And I like to give a, a couple of uh, examples of that. We have a car company, a car repair, uh, auto repair shop, and the auto repair shop has three prices for the repair of a car: new parts, used parts. You go get the used parts. We have a flower shop in our community, and the flower shop. Uh, if you walk in with eight dollars, you can get an eight dollar bouquet of flowers. That's nice. Um, so the florist. The auto repair, the food repair, these businesses are all built to the local economy. 
these communities provide opportunities for families to grow. Families become poorer if they have to move out of these neighborhoods into neighborhoods that cannot cater to them economically. The cup of coffee doesn't cost $2. It costs $4. The flowers, if you can get them, you need $16. Car repair isn't available at three, three different prices, right? So what people have to understand is that sometimes uh, gentrification actually hurts the families that are living in the community because the economic businesses can no longer maintain themselves because of the increase in taxes or because not enough of folks who want their services are going to remain in the neighborhood. Now, that's, that's interesting how, how much, you know, we, when, often when, when you think of gentrification, when you think of, of affordable housing, right, you think of you know, just the displacement of, of housing, but not, maybe not so much some of these other, the other components that, that really do have a deep impact on, on the community. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, in cities around the country, you, you talked about displacement and, and how the community in one place you know, has has to spread spread around as a result. So, what are you seeing uh, when that happens? What, what's the impact on on the the people who leave? Well, when the people leave, they usually pay more for their housing. Remember, their gentrification usually takes a lower income community and makes it more expensive. So, when if you're living in a lower income community unless there are cultural or language reasons, you are going to seek another lower income community, which now means there's more density, there's more po- uh, compiled poverty. So it, um, it, it doesn't make it better for the families that have to, ne- to leave. It's really the expansion of the, middle cl- the upper middle class when you have gentrified communities. So the upper middle class gets to spread but the price to pay for that is lower income individuals who now have to spend more of their money on housing. Uh, not always, but usually they will have to spend more on money on their housing. And even if they don't, they will have to spend more on food, more on transportation, and more on your everyday um, uh, necessities, sundries and the necessities. Uh, that they'll have to spend more. That certainly is the case, and and I think that you know every day I think these days we're um, speaking about inflation, which which puts additional pressures on all of these things. And uh, I know that one of the ways that we think about affordability in in the work that we do um, is is comparing it up against say like sixty percent of area median income, and uh, and looking across at that across different communities. How do people think about affordability, and uh, and what drives them to to that? You know, situation. Yeah, folks who are uh, in that situation, first of all, can't do long-range planning. They live on cash flow, right? I have a job. My my spouse and I have a job. We're making fifteen, sixteen dollars an hour. The, the two of us will bring in thirty-five after taxes, thirty-five, forty k. Um, there are there are impinging uh, items to that, right? The impact of rising interest rates. The impact of rising tax rates in our city. The city of Philadelphia just announced that, um, and it was in the in the paper. The paper released a study that shows our tax rate went up thirty one percent. So if you're living week to week on cash flow, and you happen to own a home or you're renting a home, the person who's renting that home is going to have to give you that increase. 
in order to stay even. So add to that the thousands of individuals who are, who are now in um, crisis because they're going to be going into uh, a court to see whether they can stay into their uh, homes um, because of the pandemic and they're behind in their mortgages or they're behind in their rents. So a 60, when we're looking at affordable housing, we're looking at if a, if a family has two incomes at $15 a month, does that hit 60 AMI? And the city of Philadelphia, it actually doesn't. So we're looking at what's 50% AMI because now we're talking about working families that can't afford a rent, not can't afford a mortgage, can't afford a rent. And it is thousands of families that are like that. In addition, we're losing more units than are being created. It's hard to preserve uh, those units that are affordable. Um, We can't produce enough uh, housing. So the impact of the pandemic, of rising interest rates, of gentrification, of of the fact that folks are not getting uh, their income, their working class people, two family, two income families, they can't afford a rent at 30% anymore. The rents are now at 45 to 50%. For Hispanic people in the city of Philadelphia, 88% of our renters are cost burdened meaning they're paying more than 30% for uh, their rental, uh, for renting of their home. So we have a national affordable housing crisis. And part of what we got to figure out is how do we begin to create more affordable housing? There are not enough federal resources. We love the low-income housing tax credits. We understand the Section 8 housing vouchers. But there's a, a the group that needs the support of, of citizens is huge and growing by the minute. And that's what led us to start to look at, we've got to find another way to create affordable housing. And that led us to a project we're calling START, uh, which is a way to get private and public partnership to provide affordable re- rental housing in perpetuity. So we're looking at land trusts as a way to find a way to create uh, housing that is less expensive on a monthly basis, that is perpetual uh, uh, rental housing, and that is less costly than what it traditionally costs to create an affordable housing unit. Well, that, that's exciting. So let's dig into that a little bit more. Uh, and there's certainly some things I'm going to want to come back to on, on, on some of the other things you're doing from a renter support uh, standpoint and housing stability. But, but let's, let's spend some time on the START program. Sure. Um, the key to making, well, START is a, as I mentioned, a public-private partnership that will provide affordable rental housing in perpetuity because the, the units are held in a land trust. It should operate and must operate less expensively than traditional government-funded programs and serve as a catalyst to develop a new approach to long-term funding for this housing. Our, our concept is that we want to create a replicable pilot program for cities that have what, we, what are called in Philadelphia row homes. But actually, those types of homes exist from Ohio through North Carolina on the east coast of the United States. Um, actually, Illinois all the way down. And so what we see is 
trying to find uh, our goal is to help as many tenants or families as possible earning between uh, 30 to 60 percent of AMI. Um, the, the row houses make that possible because these are units that already exist. They can be uh, purchased and rehabbed with a, um, a modest amount of money and then put into a land trust that keeps them perpetual. And one of the things that makes it, um, uh, that makes, as we like, like to say, it makes start work is that it can be a replicable uh, pilot program. There's row housing stock all over the United States. It's a lower cost of housing. And it's housing that's good for families with children, right? These are row houses traditionally have at least two bedrooms. Some have as many as four. And our big challenge is the long-term funding of these uh, of these units. And, and you hit on something there that I think is really important that, you know, good for families with children, right? Because so much of multifamily... Uh, housing uh, is you know, two bedrooms or less. Some, you know, you get three bedroom as well, but it, it's not quite the same thing as as what you're describing with with the row houses. So, sure. And these are houses. I, I think um, that Corey, the, the big issue for us is these are row houses that exist already, right? So their construction cost and their rehab cost, or their rehab cost, better stated, will be much less than doing a new construction low-income housing tax credit uh, deal, right, where you have to subsidize both the front end, the construction, and the back end, the monthly payment. And then at the end of 15 years, that unit may be pulled out of service. As you know, one of the problems we're having with affordable housing is that many units are being bought up by the private sector and put back into market. And while that's a good thing for the families that need that housing, these are these were units that had been subsidized by government and are now been moved out of out of out of government and have been moved in, in away from affordable housing. So that is a, as as our need for affordable housing is growing exponentially, our units are being shrunken exponentially. That's just a bad sign, right? So when you start looking at that one, we, we had a meeting here in our community with government officials. And one of the questions we're having is, are we going to start to see homeless families in the United States living in our cities? We're seeing a growth in homelessness. We're seeing growth. But, but traditionally, we don't see a three, three kids with mom and dad living in a homeless situation. We're going to see more and more of that uh, if we don't find ways to create more affordable housing where a working family could end up being homeless. That's unheard of in our country. Yeah, this is uh, this is really a great program. And uh, as you say, I, I think that the problems of today are, are very different than they have been in the past. And uh, and certainly with the, the lowest, uh, the most cheap cost housing, um, you know, the most threatened, this is, you know, hitting, hitting a, a definite need. As uh, you said that you you know your your work you know starts very local and you and you know the on the ground and and some of the work expands out to multiple states. Um, how, so how 
how broad is the start program at this point? And, uh, and, and also I'm just, uh, some of these affordability programs can be so complex. Um, you've made this sound pretty simple. Um, is it, is it, uh, is there a fair amount of complexity with it as well? Uh, yes. And there is, uh, because one of the things we want to see is we're trying to create the demonstration project that can, uh, help, uh, our, 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 our GSEC that there is a need for this type of funding and that this funding can be done with safety and soundness. I think that is a major key. I did serve on the board of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Pittsburgh uh, for, for, 20, for 20 years. And um, I had a term that I got, re, re, I got brought back to the board because most people would say, you only serve 12 years max. Well, I actually served 20. Uh, uh, I did get a chance to serve for 20. And I did. And so for me, one of the things that we're looking at is how can we work with leaders in the multifamily uh, lending unit to provide long-term funding for for SFRs that serve low-income renters? And I do want to say that we are extremely happy and supportive and appreciative that Freddie Mac has is starting to look at SFR funding and its housing equity plan. Uh, for us, one of the issues becomes, how do we find a way to make this normative in America? Not that, you know, we're just one, one nonprofit in North Philadelphia, but this problem is a national a problem. It's slowly edging into a national epidemic. Our current funding um, sources, like low-income house tax credits, they are doing the most they can. I mean, it, every low-income housing tax credit dollar is used almost immediately. So it's not like we need – it's clear we need more. The needs are greater. There are not enough Section 8 vouchers. So we need to find a private capital support, a private capital way of moving this forward. And I believe – uh, through some subsidies, through the Community Reinvestment Act and, and the support of some of our banks. And if we can find the GSE, uh, Freddie Mac has jumped ahead and is looking at um, SFR loans, uh, according to a document I looked at by 2024. If we can bring these three pieces together, we might be able to create a way to finance this type of mo- sing- single family housing but do it in a way that is significant for our country. So we understand that um, GSCs cannot be the source of the subsidy and that we got to find other subsidies. But we also understand that the potential for long-term income-targeted SFR funding under Freddie Mac and obviously uh, once Freddie's got the lead in this, but... Uh, there's other entities, there's Fannie, there's the federal home loan bank system. Once these, the GSEs find a way to create the market, the sustainability of a market, the paperwork, the traditions that need to take place, just like we do with the low-income housing tax credits or with other uh, the affordable housing programs of, of the federal home loan bank system, once we do that, it becomes normative. And once it becomes normative, we'll be able to better address the needs of of our housing um, crisis, if I can call it that. Um, We'll be in a better position to meet those needs. 
Esperanza is not going to meet all those needs, but there are thousands of organizations uh, throughout the country who can help meet the needs of the 40 to 60 percent gap that exists. And Steve, if I may, this is uh, Peter Knight. I think the, the challenge that Freddie Mac has taken on, if you think about the development of the single family loan instruments and all the procedures and processes that went into place to building the secondary market for single family homes, it took about 10 years. And so you really have uh, sort of signed on for a, for a moonshot. A critical piece of all this is the long-term funding and the fact that there is no multifamily loan instrument uh, that can work with this single family housing. Now there's a lot of controversy about the higher end single family rentals that are being bought up by the equity funds. This is obviously income targeted as uh, Reverend Cortez mentioned earlier, really looking at 50% AMI and lower. And you think about, you mentioned the complexity of something like this. It's incredibly complicated and making the numbers work is incredibly challenging. It makes some things much simpler because you don't need to buy a huge uh, area of land and get zoning changes and things to start the multi-year process to build new multifamily rental. A program like this gives the opportunity to purchase these uh, units when they become available within a certain area and take advantage of this low-cost housing. And then if the program uh, would be structured in a way to allow foundations, corporate, university support, which is going to be absolutely necessary to make the numbers work, then the challenge for a secondary market GSE operation would be with an eye to, if we can make the challenges work in Hunting Park, then in a way that it could be used in other parts of the country, that's really where the exciting elements of this impact uh, potential comes into play. And Peter, uh, thanks for raising that because the other side, which has not been mentioned, right? I, I, I did say these units would be perpetual which I think is really important for the future of this country, to have some units that will be uh, perpetually available to low-income uh, working-class families. But also there is an equity piece to this project. Uh, family, a percentage of the rents, between 5 and 10% of the rent, will be put into an, individual, an IDA, individual development account, which will help the family grow toward the future. We think it's important uh, that and every report, economic development report for the individual families, for minority families, for um, uh, equity and inclusion development says that families need to have to build equity. So we saw that and we said, you know, there's a way to do it. We can, in fact, do that. You can create the federal government created what's called the IDA account. Now every state has different rules for it, but in, in Philadelphia, we actually found a a foundation which I a foundation which is saying, hey, we'll put in the first million for the IDA account. So to uh, to to match rents. So we are looking at how can you have your cake and eat it too? The start program is that process. How can we create 
affordable affordable housing where the units don't cost four and five hundred thousand over a fifteen year period, uh, but instead you can buy a row home and have a full unit done with a, a smaller you know one hundred fifty two hundred thousand dollar mortgage. How could you then subsidize that in such a way that people can people who are at thirty um, people be at forty to sixty percent AMI can rent that house, grow, grow their family, create an equity account, and as they begin to do better uh, and that equity account grows, we actually help them buy a home and move them out of that IDA, out of that start unit, and put another family in so they could start their, their hope to move forward. So uh, to me, um, it's always about, it's not about the amount of money, it's about the cost of the money, and the how long does it take to pay the money back? So if we can get longer amortization rates, lower lower rates uh, of interest, um, subsidized chunks of money, the way it's done today when we do low-income housing tax credits or others, and we can find ways to do that, uh, the units are going to cost significantly less. We're talking about 200000 or more less than a low-income housing tax credit unit. So, and it's it's a faster process once um, uh, a project like uh, that Fannie's doing, once a project like that becomes normative, it will be a faster way to expedite the develop, the financing of the development of these units. The other thing, Steve, too, I think, is talking about the complexity of affordable housing development. It's incredibly complex. The uh, Freddie Mac uh, commitment to develop this market means that somebody like Esperanza doesn't have to worry about issuing a bond itself and going to market and doing all of that, uh, that ultimate financial work that has to go into place. It breaks it down into much simpler more manageable chunks that would be uh, 25 million, 20 million or more. And that makes it then a more targeted ask for foundations or universities uh, to provide support or local corporations. And then if it's a traditional Freddie Mac program, those different loans from around the country or uh, additional loans from Esperanza could be pulled at some point. Uh, and put it into a um, a mortgage back or asset backed security of some sort. So it really just it it doesn't certainly solve all the affordable housing uh, the affordability issues. But what it does do is create a tremendous amount of flexibility. And the fact that in your uh, housing equity finance plan you lay out very uh, important steps over the next two years to develop the standardized loan documents, loan parameters, procedures, things that will create a, a structure and a form around this kind of income-targeted housing uh, that is just uh, transformative. Well, P- Peter and Luis, I mean, it's really exciting to, to hear about what you're focused on with the, the START program and, and uh, how you see that going and you know the IDA accounts as well. I mean, there's so much in this to really play, pay close attention to and build on, on over time. It's really exciting. Uh, 
you know, I know as you're focused on on the future a bit and and trying to address this like really clear gap in the market, you're also doing a lot of work uh, on housing stability for uh, for families around Philadelphia today and, and beyond. Can we talk about that a little bit? Some of the the counseling and, and mediation work. That sure. Well, um, the city of Philadelphia has um, actually provided us not us, but has provided for its citizens and its residents um, a few million dollars to help subsidize and to help um, families that have fallen behind on their rents and or mortgages um, some funding support. Unfortunately, just as Speranza could use all of the money, there's nine, I think nine or 12 agencies in the city who need that support. Now, having said that, um, we're looking at how we can mediate with banks and say, okay, now um, how can we refinance in certain cases? The fact that interest rates are going up is knocking that potential uh, answer out of um, out of contention. But but we are looking at can CDFIs do some of this work? How can we help individual families? Who can maintain their home? How do we keep them in the home? And so we're looking at CDF bank or CDFI refinance. We're looking at uh, economic support from the city. Uh, we're looking at can there be a soft second that waits four or five years um, that then can get picked up? And I, I do want to say banks have been uh, great at responding to this, these ideas, uh, banks do realize uh, that um, that they are not, they don't want to be the owners of lots of folks who've been foreclosed or pushed out of their homes because of the pandemic. So we're looking at how we help even, uh, landlords. Um, we're looking at, at how we help landlords. That's kind of at, at, at the community and citywide level. Nationally, it's the same issue. We have um, many families that are about three months in arrears. Uh, that seems to be the kind of like the average three months in arrears, two months in arrears. Um, they're trying to catch up. We're asking banks, can you take your normal payment plus $150 in some cases? It has been a very difficult case-by-case case process. I wish there were a, another way to do it, but every family has a different uh, situation. We have had a few places where it's, it's, it's to the benefit of the landlord because of rising rents to push a family out. And then our job is to try to help find that family another place to live. I'm very grateful that most landlords have not taken that position. But uh, in Philadelphia, but in Philadelphia, any landlord could raise the rent um, on average two hundred, three hundred dollars. You know, twelve hundred dollar rent is now fifteen hundred dollars. And many landlords have not taken that. So if they're listening, I want to thank you for that because that's um, that's a great thing that people are doing to help families out in the city. And what what does that work be because you work so much with renters and landlords? Uh, what does that work look like, and how does that play out? Well, most of the time uh, we advertise, uh, and uh, people, it's at, most of our advertising is word of mouth in the neighborhood. 
So once people find out, hey, maybe they'll be able to help me, our hope is that they get in with um, that they get in before they have a foreclosure court date, uh, but they're already behind. So when they come in, uh, we do initial assessment. Once we have an assessment, a letter goes out to the if they're if it's a mortgage company or a um, processor. I don't want to mention any of the companies. So we will send a letter to that mortgage processing group or mortgage company or landlord and say, hey, we understand so-and-so is behind. We're going to try to help them catch up. Would you be willing to be part of that mediation process? Most, most of the time they are, right? Because everybody kind of recognizes the state of housing in our country and that there are thousands of people who are behind. Now, having said that, there are some, um, I'm going to call them REITs, who are unsympathetic. They're buying up properties. They have to do a return. They know they can raise the rents, so they're going to do what they got to do. Uh, that's just market being market. Uh, but it's harder to work with the landlords. It's harder to work with the investment groups and the landlords that are not local. And there's more of that happening in Philadelphia. And I think that, you know, when you talk about the, um, I mean, the incredible work and, and which is done kind of, as you say, kind of on an individual basis um, and doing this kind of negotiation and that, that you really need to go through a lot of detail in terms of uh, what how, what's going to make it work on the housing side. Um, I think that sometimes, uh, as you mentioned, the, 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 the overall community is impacted. Are there, um, you know, community support uh, effects that, that are kind of go to in tandem with this or um, that go kind of beyond housing? Uh, well, the supports beyond housing are food. Uh, there are times when we are able to provide food. There's, we have a great company, USA Foods, here in Philadelphia that has uh, provided tons and tons of food, uh, other nonprofits like Philabundance. So we have a a group, we don't do the we do direct food for about 400 families, but we we work with Phil Abundance and they take care of thousands of families. Uh, our our the 400 families we're helping with are right here in Hunting Park, but surrounding Hunting Park, there's thousands of families. So you can support with food. The city has supported, uh, and the Philadelphia Electric Company supports with what's called LIHEAP, which I can't now remember the acronym but it's in essence a subsidy for the electric, for electric payments. There are a myriad of supports that are available. Some of them are city-based, some of them are private sector-based. And what our job is to help coordinate that so that if we can free up money, they can catch up on their rent and their mortgage. So many times um, there's, a, there's a work we call, it's called Benefili, and that was paid for by the city of Philadelphia. And we have Train staff that will go over with any individual family all the benefits that they qualify for that they're not receiving. That usually leads into sometimes a significant amount of assistance, uh, which then frees up enough cash that people can catch up over a shorter, over a period of time that is reasonable. And if you go to bankruptcy, if you go to the court, when we go to the court, we can say, if this landlord is willing to do this, this person can make this payment of an additional $300 a month. And 
they will catch up in this rent in about nine months, 10 months. The judges have been um, open to that type of, of uh, process. And we've been, um, I'm going to say, sometimes it's better to, to be lucky than good. We've been lucky enough that many of them have made those payments so that uh, most of them, not many, uh, the grand majority of them have made those payments. And so they haven't um, been put out of their homes or um, apartment, uh, rental apartments. There's still thousands of people on that list. So the court has not been able to catch up. We are working with hundreds of the thousands as are some of our sister agencies. So there are some mediations and there's a lot of possibilities. Um, we're looking at can foundation support or others give support. We have received some of that. And so, and the city has put some of its uh, affordable, the affordable housing dollars that it can has, they've moved some of those dollars because they actually recognize some of these families are going to become homeless. They're going to cost the city a lot more. People will then lose jobs. They will lose their car, automobile to get to work. So there's sort of this negative uh, or really bad scenario where losing your home, actually giving someone one month's rent will actually save the city and government thousands. Now, you have to be very judicial how you do that. But the city has created a great program, so I'm really proud of what the city has done in this case. Reverend Cortez and and Peter, it's been fantastic to have you on the on the podcast today. I'm mean, such a deep look at, at so many things and a lot of fantastic programs that that, uh, that you're working on. And and uh, you know, despite all the challenges that uh, being faced right now, it, it's uplifting to hear some of the the great work that you're doing. So. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Well, thank you, uh, Corey and Steve. It, it's, our, it's our pleasure. And we are very proud of the work we do. And we are really looking forward to seeing what the GSEs can do. And we want to congratulate uh, Freddie for its attempt to create more affordable housing for our, our country. Thank you. Thanks for being on. The Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production leads, Jenny Wynn and Raquel Sams, and audio producer, Dalton Ocola. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddiemac.com research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.